just as, as her reading hangs there, there's a part in the middle, he must become greater and I must become less. If you tune me out at this point and you don't hear anything else, that is the point. I'm not saying you should fall asleep now, but I am saying that is the point. If you're looking at what the author intended you to take away from this passage, that is the point. Okay. That was kind of a slipshod introduction, wasn't it? I'm... Okay. So, I mentioned I'm, I'm not Tim Riley, um, if you were here before. And uh, this passage is about the role of John the Baptist and the role of Christ and some confusion by some disciples and some things going on. And as I was thinking about roles and Tim being out of town, I thought about the analogy that I always like to use because I picture Tim Riley as a 200-pound, six-foot-two black man. <laughs> I think we have a picture of the specific black man that I am thinking of. The mighty Dave Stewart. So Dave Stewart was an Oakland Athletics pitcher. Any Oakland A's fans, uh, current or former, in the room? Okay, we've got one wishy-washy fan, not totally sold. I'm, I'm sorry? Okay, all right. Got, got your priorities straight. Giants, then A's, maybe a long time in between is what I'm gathering. Anyway. I was a student at Berkeley, and uh, classes, while scintillating, um, were not. And I lived near a BART line, and you could go to the Oakland Coliseum Stadium and for 350 sit in the bleachers, and if you went on the right day, you could see Dave Stewart, who was in his heyday. Dude was a stud. Three pitches, he had a fastball tended to wander a little bit up, which uh, made things interesting. He had a slider, and he had a fork ball. So Dave's, Dave's, if, if you look at it, he doesn't look friendly, right? Like, I'm smiling. I can't help it. Dave's got, he's got the visor pulled down. He's standing on the mound. I kid you not, one time he threw at somebody's head after somebody else hit a home run, and the opposing manager came out and was trying to get him ejected, failed, charged the mound, Stewart comes down off it, dodges the guy's kick, lays him down. Pretty cool, right? Like, <laughs> so that's Tim. Then you've got the friendly-looking white guy with the 80s mustache, Gene Nelson. So we went to see Dave Stewart because Dave was great. Nobody went to see Gene Nelson. And I'm not saying that because I didn't appreciate Gene Nelson's pitching. He was actually a very good pitcher. He'd been a starter before. For Oakland, he did middle relief. This is where, statistically, you just disappear. You don't start any games, so you're unlikely to get a win. You don't finish any games, so you're unlikely to get a win or a save. You just make sure that the team makes it to the closer. And... Uh, I always liked the way he went around about his business, and he had three pitches, a fastball, a slider, and a forkball. But the way those two guys delivered it was just a whole different ball of wax. His fastball looked kind of off-speed compared to Stewart's, just to be perfectly honest. And that's normally kind of what I see my own. I'm a little gentler. I'm not going to throw for your head. 
Here's the thing, though. This passage kind of throws for our heads. So just don't crowd the plate. Or crowd the plate and, and collide with it. That may be a good thing. All right. And you go, Mike, man, you spent an awful lot of time just to say that Tim's not here. You know, like, and, and that's, that's true. But I, I also want to sort of give a real-life example of how people are in different roles and they have to give up some of their, I don't know, their zing in order to get the job done. So Dave Stewart, if, if when we went to a game, we were pretty much expecting eight innings out of him. So you didn't often get the combination of, of Dave Stewart and then Gene Nelson, but things happen. And if you don't have anybody between your starter and your closer, you're doomed. And so Gene's got his role, and it was really essential to what the A's were able to do in that time frame. They were a, quite a winning team when I had the privilege of seeing them. All right. In our passage today, we've got people who are not always looking at the big picture to get the win for the team. Does that make sense? And I, we have a slide. I just want to run, run us uh, to the next one, actually. Uh, this first part of the, the passage, the, the NIV paragraphs it pretty nicely. This, this first paragraph from what Ruth read today, it's... <coughs> It's about getting distracted from what the real point is. And there are, there, well, there's really only one distraction here. A Jewish man comes to John the Baptist's disciples, and they have some kind of a throwdown over ceremonial washing. John, the apostle, the, the disciple that Jesus loved, doesn't see any need to explain to us what exactly the points of contention were. This is a little hint, by the way, that John doesn't think that's where we ought to be focused. Okay. What's weird is John the Baptist recently pointed out that this guy came from God. He's the one that this is all about, and his disciples are going, hey, that guy's not right about ceremonial washing. And it has the weirdest effects. But what was even stranger, as I looked at this passage, so there's that one point of dispute, right? It's the ceremonial washing and baptism, something about that. I found three significant disagreements about the text. And it was the oddest thing to be reading pages and pages of people explaining things that were let me give you some examples. I think we have a slide that has conflicts. Let's just skip the map. We don't care. Anybody atlasy? Yeah, I didn't think so. All right, so we, in the text, there's the ceremonial washing versus the baptism. But then, who is baptizing? Well, this passage says in verse 322, it, it implies that Jesus is baptizing. But then in John 4, 2, just a few verses later, it says that it was really his disciples who were baptizing. 
And I kid you not, people spent pages explaining about how different threads were sewn together by an editor, and this was one of those, oh, nobody noticed that there was a contradiction between the two accounts. N the editor didn't reconcile it. Seriously, were people dumb 2,000 years ago? Is that, that your, your idea? It, nobody caught that? No. But arguments raged about this. And I was like, wow, Jesus is in this passage, and we're arguing about who's doing the baptizing. The Son of God makes an appearance. The spotlight is on him. And wait, was it him or his disciples who did the baptizing? And what does that mean about the textual criticism? Okay. The place, Judean countryside. All right. Now, to me, this seems pretty clear. If I say, hey, this week I spent in Cedar Ridge, do you have any idea where I spent my week? Anyone? Wow, we've got more A's fans than Cedar Ridge. Okay. If I say Twainheart, anyone? Okay, we've got some hands. All right. Sonora? Okay, more hands. Yosemite. All right, now Yosemite is the least accurate, but it's the one I'm going to tell somebody from New York City because I don't expect them to know where Cedar Ridge is. Well, it's near Sonora, yeah, Sonora, which is near Twainheart. Anyway, people have argued about this. Well, this is another textual issue because they were already in Judea, so going into Judea is not, it doesn't make any sense. So clearly multiple people have written this. What does it say? Where did they go? They went into the sticks. They went out of Jerusalem into a place that didn't have a bunch of compact people. All right, last thing. Before John. And this, this is an especially weird one. And from the blank looks I'm getting from most of you, I, I'm just going to try to make this as quick as possible. All right. The synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all start the story of Jesus's ministry at a point after this. And John is saying, this happened before the other stuff you already know about because those other gospels were written first. So there's this thing that happens instead where people go, oh, John and the Synoptic Gospels don't agree, and so we need to throw out the book of John. And I kid you not, I've had this conversation over dinner before. And the problem with it is that we can never get to who Jesus is if we're going to look at every detail in the, in the pages and see if we can misinterpret it enough to miss the point. Are you tracking with that? And I'm sorry to say that it's certainly possible that that happens in families, in ministries, in churches today, that what we are most interested in, what really lights us up is what other people are doing wrong or how they don't quite have it right when it turns out that they are actually pursuing the main thing. They're going for their team to win the kingdom of God with King Christ at its head, and we're going to bicker about methodology. All right, well, it's 
good to know, I guess, that human nature is the same yesterday, today, and maybe, hopefully, not forever by the power of God. What's even worse is, I don't know if you've had this experience, um, when I was an IT guy, there were days when something was not literally on fire, although that happened as well, come to think of it, uh, but people were mad, production was stopped, what do you do now, and the whole day it's can we pull a, a, something out of our hat to get things running again. And so whether, whether one leaves the office at the end of that time successful-ish or feeling like a total failure and then drives through Bay Area traffic home, one arrives at one's home potentially with a feeling of wanting to chew somebody's arm off rather than greet them with a hug and a kiss. Am I the only person who's ever had this experience? Okay, yes. Oh, thank you. Thank you, sir. Somebody's got my back. Okay. That's the thing about conflict. It's burbling in the background. It's distracting us from the main thing, and it makes us crabby. And we can tell that it makes us crabby because it's not that the disciples of John don't go to John and go, hey, this guy came to us and he was talking about ceremonial washing and we were trying to sell him on baptism and it just didn't go anywhere. What do you think? Instead, they come and they go, give me the emoji. Everyone's going to him, right? Isn't that a weird thing? Uh, what, what's the trigger? Some totally unrelated, unimportant issue. But their response is distancing them from the person who can save them from who they are. If you are involved in a ministry in the Church of Jesus Christ, you are going to be tempted at some time, or possibly continuously, to look at somebody else's ministry and go, they're doing it wrong. Look at how many people are over there. It's because they're doing it wrong. My way is more effective. Fewer people show up and nobody's lives are transformed, but my way is more effective. And I'm saying it's silly, but I'm talking about a deadly serious topic because we've got this thing in us where we can't disappear like my hypothetical Gene Nelson into the woodwork and just do our job. We, we, we want a crowd. We, we want to be recognized. We want things to go the way they ought to go. And can you imagine being in John the Baptist's shoes? He's a guy who's, I mean, he's shaking things up. Crowds have been flocking to him. The political people have taken notice of him. The religious people don't know what to do because he's so popular they can't poke at him. And his disciples are like, well, we thought he was the big thing, and there's this other guy, and his tent's more crowded. Blah. Totally the wrong response to Jesus. And I think we have to ask ourselves some questions about what, what do we miss if we're thinking about other people's ministries, other people's service, stories of other people connecting people they know with a savior 
and instead of being excited and joy-filled, go well, but they, they don't yet know the full gospel. Well, do they speak Hebrew yet? Well, are they all in on a 10% on the gross tithe? I, we're going to nitpick every minor thing because there's something inside us that doesn't want to cooperate with our king. So, what's missed when that happens? The Savior who's standing right there. The one whose cause we're here for. The one we celebrate. So, Jesus is standing there, and they're pointing at him and going, man, we've got a problem. That's not the problem they have. Okay, so I have two questions for you. I think they're in the... uh, in the bulletin, and we'll also put them on the screen in three, two, okay. What kind of disputes do you see among church people? You like the way I phrase that? Isn't that nice and those other people-ish? It's kind of easy to answer that one, right? Those people do it the wrong way. Those people who are, you know, all about a show, those people who uh, don't do it my way. Okay, but which arguments do you enter? Like, how do you and I get involved in this? There have been multiple times where I have been in, you know, beep, 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 texting somebody back and forth about somebody else's, you know, terrible idea, and then it turns out that somebody got it wrong and transmitted it to me wrong, and I'm playing a game of telephone, and the person that I was saying they're off is on. And that's all on me. And I may be the only person in the room, and I thank God for the opportunity to preach to myself. But if you feel the same way too, if there's an opportunity for you to go, when do I get taken off the main point, the goodness of God expressed through Jesus Christ sent to us with his handout, and instead I indulge in being right? All right, those are two questions for you. Let's keep moving. An identity. Okay. The beauty is that John's got an identity that allows him to accept the point. His analogy is a lot better than the baseball one that I used. It's the best man. Anybody been a best man? I've got a a few hands. Okay. So imagine you're at a wedding here. I'm told that there have been many performed here and you've got you know the groomsmen are waiting for the for the bride to show up on her father's arms perhaps and the 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 groom is looking expectantly and there she appears in the door and the best man you know blocks him out runs down the hall grabs her and off they go on his harley i'm feverish give me a break uh So, zoom, off they go. This is not what I would call a best man, right? This is, you know, low on the terrible man (laughs) list. I'm not sure who's below it, but as far as friends go, lousy. And John is saying, how do you expect me to be standing here looking at the bride and going, yeah, that's mine. Forget it, dude. It's like, I'm stoked. He's here, she's here, it's all happening, this is what we've waited for. 
right? I mean, my brother was my best man, and he's not a jump-up-and-down kind of guy, but he looked pretty happy, perhaps because it was going to be over. I, I <laughs> you may be feeling the same thing. Um, the beauty of that situation is that John is filled with this joy that comes from his disappearance. Isn't that weird? Does that resonate with anybody? Yes, I'm going to be my most effective by disappearing. Now, uh, nobody teaches, you know, at, at my office, we have people come and, and teach you how to be a good employee, how to be a good manager, how to be a good whatever. And they don't say, the thing you should do is disappear. On the contrary, the more you can draw attention to yourself, the better, right? And maybe there are places that that's okay. This isn't one of them. Because what Jesus has is what John is there to point to. John's not there to go, I'm awesome. And this is the thing that I love about Gene Nelson. Sorry, I had to go back to it. He's not getting the stats. He's not getting the praise. He's not getting doofus, you know, juniors in, in college coming down specifically to see him. It's, we don't know when he's going to pitch. Even if we cared, we wouldn't know. But he's happy to do his part and get, get the team a win. Because he's got the big picture in mind. Do you and I in our lives have the big picture in mind or even when we're doing what we'd consider the right thing, is there a piece of us that just wants to take a scoop of that acclaim from God and let's just oh, bask in that just a little bit? Again, if it's just me, that's, that's fine. 1 Corinthians 4.7 says something very similar. Um, who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? If you did receive it, why do you boast as though it were somehow yours? And that's what John is saying. He's going, I, I, I'm made for this. But here's the thing, that's all I'm made for. I'm made to be a witness to this guy. I'm made to point you to him. And that's, that's a way in which you and I ought to be following in John's footsteps. His followers point. Do you, when I say point people to Jesus, in your daily life, does that connect anywhere? Is, is there some place where you can glorify Jesus in a way that people understand? Because that's one of the reasons that we meet as a group, is to encourage one another in learning to do that in the context that you are specifically in and that I'm specifically in where the other couldn't go. I mean, I'm making references to 80s baseball players for crying out loud. You don't want me going to high schools. Right? This is self-evident, correct? I mean, and for crying out loud, couldn't I have found a giant who would 
Phil, any Giants fans in the rooms? All right, well, not a baseball crowd, fine. But there were about, you know, eight times more uh, Giants fans than, than A's fans. So clearly, I've got my own little special niche, okay? And, and that's where I'm going to minister. So followers point, let me, let me ask you a couple of questions. And I believe they are there on your bulletin as well. What do you do in service to God? It doesn't have to be a formal thing that, you know, somebody gave a stamp to in a church or in an outside organization. It doesn't even have to be something that you could describe in two sentences or less. But is there a thing that you do that is your service that gives you joy in being able to give back to the God who gave you something in the first place? And if so, what's the temptation? Because it's not the same for everybody. What's your personal way of making it all about you? You've got control freaks who won't let anybody else do anything in their ministry because they're not going to do it the right way. You've got people who are amazing producers as long as the spotlight gets to remain on them. Are there elements of your service to God that you need to give up as a sacrifice? Not the service, but the, the tip you shave off. All right. The last paragraph in this passage is about the one. He's the one who is the point. And the problem is that John is a witness, and we're supposed to look past John to what he's pointing to. Jesus is also a witness, but we're not looking just past Jesus, we're also looking at him. But first, what, what's, what's Jesus a witness to? He's the one who came from heaven. Has anybody seen one of those movies or read one of those books about people who say they died and then they, they ran toward the light boy and then they had, you know, adventures and whatever? Okay, a couple of hands. Um, I, I don't buy any of them. I, I haven't seen one yet that makes sense biblically. But whether you believe them or not, I can do you one better. Because here's a guy who started in the light, and he came to the darkness, and it cost him. Because we didn't receive him like somebody who came from the light. We received him in our own special, sinful, hateful, whether we religiously scorned him, whether we perpetrated violence on him, we all rejected him. And yet, he did his work, and he went back to the light. And he's this king of this kingdom, and we, we look at him, and we look beyond him to the place he came from, and we say, I want earth to be as it is in heaven. So, okay, he's this witness. He's more than a witness. And I've got 
a few ways in which Jesus is superior. This is going to get a little nerdy again, and I apologize. If you were here a few weeks ago, Jesus turned water into wine. What was the water in? It was in these big vessels for ceremonial washing. What is Jesus saying? Saying, you don't need that. He just filled the ceremonial water vessels with wine. They are now ruined for ceremonial washing, unless you like the sort of henna look on your arms, right? (laughs) Jesus is greater than the temple. He goes in there and he causes a ruckus. Why? Because he's the one who has the authority to do so. He's bigger than the temple, and they don't get that. John is like, boom, boom. What else you got? Oh, well... There was the snake lifted up by Moses. And guess what? Those people, they were poisoned. They look at the the snake that God told Moses to lift up, and they're healed. And then someday later, they died. Jesus was lifted up for you and for me. He died, and he came back. And what he did allows us to live forever with him. Oh, boom, got that. Okay, better than Moses, any known purification. At the time, there's lots of baptisms going on. That's why there's this whole bickering about, you know, washing versus baptism, you know. Do I condition my hair before? Anyway, Jesus, he's bigger than that. He's not baptizing people. Why is he not baptizing people? Because his goal isn't that you simply repent and, you know, have your body covered in water. His desire is that the Spirit of God would live in you as you follow him. Bigger than witness. Way, way bigger. I have a picture of something that happened uh, this week. Did anybody see the, the Pope comforting the child? So, the child has a father who was an atheist and has died. He allowed the child to be baptized, and the the child had the opportunity to interact with the Pope. And he was crying, and he said, is my father going to be in heaven? And so the Pope comforted him. I mean, that's pretty great, okay? Um... And he asked the child if it was okay if he said what he had told him. And the account that I read said that he said, any any father who could bring up a child like you who's willing to to grieve for his father and show his emotion and uh, who who wants good things for him, he's got to be a good person and he can't be far from God's heart. And I said, oh. Because that's... That's not what John said. I'm not saying that you read the last verse of our passage to a child who's grieving about their father. But the father loves the son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. If I live a life in which I say, there's no God and I hate him, I don't care how great I am to my children. Do you think I want an eternity in the overwhelming glory of God? 
Hell no. And let's take, let's take our unbelief and the unbelief of the people that we love seriously enough to not pat their heads and say, it's going to be okay. But instead, to think about what it is that they're after. What do they fear? What do they love? In what ways is there a connection to Jesus there? Because he's a connection to every good thing there is. I'm going to skip to the questions um, in this section. And the question is, who's the one in charge of your life? John was clear on this in this inter interchange. That's what I'm for. All I can do is go him, him, him. He's the one. Don't get distracted. Him, him. He's so good. Is that what my life says? Is that what your life says? If you roll the footage from the, the you know, camera on your laptop that wasn't supposed to be on, but the NSA said, yes, it will. I know I don't want you watching everything it sees. And that's in part because I kind of want to be a little bit in charge of my life. In my experience is most other people do too. So who is in charge of your life? For real, how do you know and what do you do about it? One of the things that we do, we sing. And if the worship team could come up, I think it would be good, good to sing. Another thing that we do is we take an offering. And this one's going to serve a couple of functions. One is it's our opportunity to say, who's in charge of my money? Well, I want to say it's me. But I've got a boss, and he says the team is what I'm for. So if you came prepared, we'll pass some bags in a minute. The other thing, though, is there was a card you should have been given on your way in. It's a census card. And as I said, if you were here at the very beginning of the service, this is week three that we've asked for it. And the reason that we're still asking for it is because it has a field that it was lacking before. It shouldn't have been lacking it. It has an email field. So if you've already turned one in, just put your name on it and put your email address on it. And Tim will be so happy about that. If you haven't been here before and you want to tell us that you were here, we'd love to get the rest of the information there. Because this is a place where we want to connect. We want to understand who's here. We want to understand how we can help each other and encourage each other and build each other up. God, there are so many ways in which I wish I could explain you better. And so I'm so grateful for your word which explains you so well. Would you open our eyes to where we want some of the acclaim? 
would you open our eyes to where we don't see that we haven't made you in charge of everything. And I pray that you would love us and that you would help us to love you as you deserve. All glory to your name. Amen.